distance of here at a place called Williamsburg Graphics, and I used to come here after work most days to lift in that room right over there. So I got here this morning and I was itching to go like hit the bench before I, I sermon prepped, but I didn't want to break any boundaries that maybe Jamie had. He'd never forgive me. But uh, I'm excited to be here um, and the ministry that goes on here. Let me tell you the one place in city life where ministry has kind of not been happening as it should is Revolution Church. It's our student ministries that happens on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. down in Newport News. And yes, I am the youth pastor, but no, this is not some public confession that I'm lazy or that I'm putting down the mantle of ministry. This is me simply saying that for three out of the past four weeks, we've had snow and had to cancel. It's as if Janice and Leon and Pax had some personal vendetta against myself and my ministry. And I mean, I had to get some healing last night at Newport News Campus. Uh, I needed ministry to happen to myself. And I also kind of preached like a bear getting let out of a cage. So this is your warning that you're in for it. If I preach like Ric Flair on Red Bull, you know why. Because three out of the past four weeks, I've been like locked up in my house. Like, why am I not ministering right now? So it's good to be here. I'm itching to get going. But with that, let's pray. Let's pray that God speaks, all right? You can pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for, again, the, the sweet worship we had this morning. God, that awakened us to your presence that was already here. And Lord God, we know that there are truths in your word that you want to speak this morning. So we pray that, pray that you would just in the same way awaken us to what you want to say. And God, we say that we open the door of our hearts and we say, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Rearrange what you want to rearrange and let us leave here changed and looking more like your son. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning, you can put down the title, Kingdom Come. But I want to start this morning by uh, putting the ball in your court with a question. What do you want to do when you get to heaven? You know, I believe as a believer, if you've thought about heaven for more than 10 minutes, you've kind of come up with like a laundry list of things you want to do. Might be people you want to meet, like Moses or Abe Lincoln or your great-great-grandfather. Might be uh, something you want to do, like you want to fly. Questions you want to ask, like was Sasquatch real? Is there a Chick-fil-A up here and can I still eat chicken nuggets? You know, whatever that might be. What are some things that you want to do when you get to heaven? <laughs> Let me tell you, I've got my laundry list. Y'all need to go home and think about it. <laughs> People you want to meet, I'm like, dude, let me talk to Noah about how much the ark stank. You know, all different kinds of stuff. But I know myself, when I get up to heaven, I'm going to get a big old tub of popcorn just saturated in butter because I'm going to have my heavenly body. I'm going to be built like Ryan Gosling. And there aren't, ca there aren't calories in heaven, so I've got to worry about that. You know, so I'm going to get my big old tub of buttered popcorn, and I want to watch the Sermon on the Mount. Because if, if you really think about it, Jesus had to be the best preacher. You know, and if you were to pull a Kanye and grab the wireless mic from Jamie and stop me and say, Juice, I'm going to let you finish, but Jesus preached the greatest sermon of all time, I might hate you in the moment, but I would have to agree with you because that had to be one of the best sermons of all time. I want to see his vocal intonations. I want to see his facial expressions. You know, I just want to see that sermon preached because it was a big sermon. This was him essentially uh, presenting the platform for his ministry at the height of his popularity. And he began to talk about this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven. And this perked the ears of a lot of the people of that time. Because the Old Testament had talked again and again how God was going to bring his kingdom here on earth. And a lot of the Jews were looking for a political Messiah. You see, at this time in Matthew 5, there were a lot of stuff going on. But in Matthew 4... You begin to see Jesus talk about the kingdom. In Matthew 4, 17, 
It says that Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In Matthew 4.23, it says Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. I love in the message version, it says that God's kingdom was his theme. And if you were here last week at service, Pastor Jamie preached, and his theme was about our house, city life, and what makes us distinctly unique as a house of God and as a church. And as he probably said last week, and Pastor Fred has said before, there are many churches on the peninsula. Find one that you can call home and you can grow. And even if it's not this one, we've got a laundry list of great churches around here. But when you start thinking about all those different churches, you do realize that in reality, there is one church on earth. There's one church on the peninsula. There's one kingdom. And Jesus was obsessed with this kingdom. He mentioned it in Matthew some 50 times. That's almost an average of twice per chapter. And again, this would have perked the ears of the Jews who were waiting for a Messiah who would be a political savior. From 67 to 37 BC, 150,000 Jews were either crucified or killed for rebelling against Roman reign and rule in their religion. And they were waiting for Jesus to come and topple the regime of Rome and put God's people, the Israelites, back into a position of prominence. But we know what happened. Jesus dies in his prime at age 33. The kingdom of Israel goes downhill after he dies. Jerusalem gets burned. The temple is destroyed. And then after that, less and less Jews believe, and we see the church grow amongst the Gentiles as Paul does his ministry. So we see from all this that the kingdom that Jesus ushers in, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, however you want to spell it out, it wasn't so much about ruling a country or reigning a culture, but it was about reigning in human hearts. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. But I've been in youth ministry now at the City Life Church for about two years. And we kind of have this circle of churches that we go to camp with, like Jamie announced. We have a circle of churches we go to conferences with um, from different regions in the mid-Atlantic. And there's kind of like this youth ministry culture, the same way we have a culture here at City Life. There's certain distinctives. And I've kind of, over the years, just been sucked in. Like the first one this morning is the deep V. Not just the regular V, but the deep V. I mean, we used to go to conferences, and I used to joke with my leaders about how deep the Vs were on some of these worship leaders. Like, just look at how deep that V, I can almost see his sternum, right? Like, and now I've got V-necks in my dresser that make grown men blush. You know, like, I don't know if you know Nate Nowotny is one of our elders, but they make him uncomfortable. And if you know Nate Nowotny, that's, that's a step. <laughs> that's a challenge that I, that I have achieved. And then the second thing is coffee. I never really drank coffee growing up. My dad drank it black. So I'd be like, oh, that smells good. Let me taste it. And then I'd throw up in my mouth. I, I never drank coffee really coming up. But there's a church uh, that will remain nameless. When they do the Daniel fast, they still drink coffee because it's a part of their DNA. I swear it runs through their blood. Like every one of their youth leaders has to have a gold card from Starbucks. They are all about some coffee. And it was about maybe a year ago, somewhere around there, I woke up. It was like another Thursday morning where I'm beat. And I'm like, man, I can only drink but so many Red Bulls in one day. And I was like, let me try this coffee thing again. You know, made it about the same color as my skin tone with all this creamer and sugar. And I was like, I, I can do this. So coffee has become kind of like my AM pick-me-up. And it's become a part of who I am. And then a, a third distinctive that you see just in youth culture around the nation is the, uh, I call this the prohibition high and tight haircut. And uh, I don't honestly know where it came from. I think about a year ago probably this church thought it was uh, unique to myself and Macklemore, right? <laughs> However, 
We went to the Wave Conference, which is at that Wave Church in Virginia Beach last August. And within the male group of maybe 19, 18 to 25, about 99% of them had this haircut. Again, I don't know where it came from, even for myself. I just woke up one morning. It was kind of like Steve Carell and Evan Almighty. It was there. Freaked Steph out, but we, we've kept it. But when you look at all these different elements, I've kind of come to the realization that if you add all that together, it's like every youth pastor wants to be the Katie Couric interviewed, uh, GQ spreading Carl Lentz. And maybe that's just funny to me and Jamie, two youth pastors. But uh, there's a fourth distinctive as well within our circle. I think it's unique to probably the circle of churches we do ministry with. And it's that they love risk, the game risk. Who here likes to play risk? <laughs> Couple people. I'm with you. I can't stand it. It's like the one game on earth, the one board game that manages to be longer than Monopoly, right? And we talked about the CYP retreat. If you're a college or a young professional, you should go. It's at the end of March. And let me tell you, that Friday night when everybody first gets there and all the, the youth are resting, gearing up for a full week of ministry, all the youth leaders get together in the leader's cabin and they play risk till like 4 in the morning. Because, again, it's like the longest board game. And I can't stand it. I'm too competitive. You know, I think I played once with my little brother, and I've got two dice, right? I'm just rolling them, rolling them, rolling crappy numbers. I lost my little brother. I'm too competitive for that. I've burned any relationship with risk. And, you know, I think, you know, Jesus, I'm comfortable with that because I don't know if Jesus would be all about the game of risk. Because, again, he wasn't interested in ruling a territory. He wasn't interested in ruling a state or a country, but he asks to rule our hearts. You know, what I want to look at this morning is that the kingdom of heaven comes to rule in our hearts. And the kingdom of God, it moves through grace. And there's a quote that I want to kind of jump off of this morning. It's from the book Mere Christianity. And C.S. Lewis wrote it. He's talking about the world after the fall. And he says, enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. So this morning, the question is, how do we partake in this campaign of the kingdom? And maybe you would ask, well, why is it important? Well, because, again, Jesus was obsessed with the kingdom. He was constantly talking about it. He, it was his heart. And how do we partake in this campaign of the kingdom? I would just give you one word with how we do that, and that word is grace. You know, grace is the currency of the kingdom. Grace is like the key to the city. It's essentially our secret weapon. You know, George McDonald once says, the world can do anything the church can do except one thing. It cannot show grace. As you know, if you look at Aristotle's lofty ethics, there's no place for a good man to show love to a bad man. But the question is, if grace is so amazing, if we're saved because of it, why aren't we known for it? Why don't we show more of it? How come when you go out on the streets and you ask a random person, how would you describe the church? So often it's not grace, it's political stances. And if you were to ask some people that have transgressed in some of these political stances, whether it's homosexuality or abortion, whether they would feel welcome in a church, the answer is usually heck no. So the question is, how has this happened? Because if you look at Jesus, he was the friend of sinners. It's almost as if he had a magnetism where they flocked to him. They felt welcome around him. And they weren't his projects. He wasn't, wasn't a person that took on sinners as projects. He was the friend of sinners. He knew their name. He knew the wives' name, who their kids were, where they lived, what their jobs were. So the question is, how have we somehow reversed that magnetism? And I would say it's because of grace. Two things I want to look at this morning. We've got to understand the depths of grace and only after that we must undertake the distribution of grace. 
But this morning, first, let's look at the depths of grace. Because I believe at times grace can make people uncomfortable. Because there's a scent of scandal with grace. I mean, Karl Barth, a Swiss theologian, was asked what he would say to Hitler if he had the chance. And he said he would say to Hitler, Jesus died for your sins. You know, grace shows no discretion. It seemingly has no limit. A dying criminal on a cross in his last breath can receive grace and forgiveness. Jesus from the cross forgave the ones who were crucifying him. That's radical grace. And if you go to John 8, verses 3 through 11, you see grace extended to a woman caught in adultery. And that's where I want to park it tonight, this morning. Excuse me. (laughs) It's John 8. If you want to turn there, swipe that there, however you're going to get there. It's verse 3 through 11. If you get to a John with a number before it, you've gone too far. Go back to the left. But I'm going to read it out of this itty-bitty Bible. I don't need glasses to read this, but if I read out of this Bible all the time, I would end up needing glasses. It's the New King James Version. It says, Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So when we look at this passage, John kind of points it out that the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they weren't seeking justice as much as they were just trying to present him with a trap. Otherwise, they would have brought both guilty parties, but they just bring the woman. And the trap was this. As it says in John, the Mosaic law said that this woman should be stoned. But Roman law said that they didn't have the jurisdiction to do so. So essentially, they were thinking, whatever Jesus says, we can catch him in the wrong. And to them, there were two people in the crowd that day. To the Pharisees, there was this woman who was a sinner, and there were, then there were the, the righteous accusers, the religious professionals. And the question is, who do we often identify with? You know, I believe that on an exceptionally bad day where we really screw up, we feel like the woman being accused of sin. But I would say a lot of the time, we identify with the accusers. And maybe you might not say that, but let's take a pop quiz. How often does Pastor Fred or Jamie preach a sermon, right? It's convicting, it strikes you in the heart, and you're like, man, I cannot wait till this is a podcast. I cannot wait until Pastor Fred puts the notes up, because I'm going to forward it to Steve, because he's living this ratchet lifestyle, and he needs to hear every bit of this. I'm going to somehow code it and send it with a pigeon to my mother-in-law so she doesn't know it comes from me, because she needs to hear every bit of this. You know, we immediately begin to think of, oh, man, so-and-so needs to hear this. Oh, that was a good point, man. I need to tell that to this person. And maybe that's not you, but another question. How often do we rate sin or have levels of lostness? You know, I'm guilty of this as a pastor sometimes. Sometimes I look at one kid and I'm like, man, he is like a 30-second conversation about the gospel away from finding Christ. And then I look at another kid and I'm like, man, you would have to enlist the entire armies of heaven. We would have to move mountains for that person to find Jesus. 
But you know what? There's not levels of sin where there's a small sin, medium sin, and then the big nasties. You know, sometimes we rank them like that. And sure, sin has different varying levels of consequence, but God's grace covers them all the same, and it can do it in an instant. Again, a dying criminal on the cross received grace and forgiveness. He seems so far. But Jesus eliminates these categories when he says, let he who is without sin cast that first stone. He points out the two real categories there that day. And that are that is self-aware sinners and self-righteous sinners. And we see in this story and we see in life that self-aware sinners are the ones that find the kingdom of God. This woman caught in adultery was closer to the kingdom than her self-righteous accusers. And you know what? Jesus awakens the awareness of their sin in them. And I love that it says it convicts them. They were looking to condemn this woman, and Jesus convicts them. And that's an important word choice because I want to look at the difference. Condemnation is a weapon of the enemy that wants us to tap out, to disqualify ourselves, to throw in the towel because of the weight of sin. But conviction is a tool of Jesus and a tool of God that works for our benefit. Yes, he awakens us to our sin and our guilt, but it's not to crush us, it's to redeem us, it's to free us from, from their snare, right? When, when God convicts us, it awakens us. And yes, sometimes we're left trembling, we're left humbled, but our hands are open and we're ready to, see, to receive grace. You know, this idea of sloppy grace, it's become a stream of theology that, that we don't flow with. But grace deals with sloppy people, messed up people. Grace is what comes to a 21-year-old senior at William & Mary who's an alcoholic and struggling with all kinds of stuff and says, you know what, you need to give this up, pursue Christ because I want you to lead ministry one day. You know, it's crazy to even think that, but grace deals with jacked up people. And it's not that we have to clean ourselves up to receive it because I was hardwired to screw up. I still am. I still need grace daily. You know, grace can get sloppy, but we need to recognize with this in mind, the third party in the narrative of John 8. There were self-aware sinners, there were self-righteous sinners, and then there was the advocate, Jesus Christ, who said, you know what, for both of you, there's grace. In 1 John 2.1, it says, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. See, Jesus is our advocate. It means he's our defender. When there's a guilty verdict, which we all have because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Jesus steps up and says, you know what? I died for that. I love that person enough to cover that with my blood from the cross. And, you know, only as Jesus, or as only Jesus can do, he strikes this balance. He dies for us. He's our advocate. But why does he do it? So that we will not sin. In John 8, he strikes this balance seemingly in the same breath. He says to the woman, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, go and sin no more. See, grace may seem scandalous and it may seem sloppy in its application at times, but it is powerful in its transformation. You know, Pastor Fred has preached about grace at City Life, and he said before that grace expects you to break a sweat spiritually being transformed. You know, grace tells us to come out of sin, tells us to come up. You know, our theme for 2014. And I would say that if you're not being transformed, If you look at your life and you're no different than you were before you met God, that you need a truer grasp of grace, which not only covers our sin, but it allows us to live in a new way, to be transformed. But the idea is it's not God at the gavel announcing our guilt that gives us the fuel to be transformed. That's not what sparks, man, I want to change. 
It's Jesus being the advocate who says, I love this person enough to die for them. That fuels the love that I have for him that makes me want to change and be transformed. You know, we just came out of Valentine's Day. And then how many of you guys also knew it was marriage week? Yeah. I saw like Steve Ruggiero, one of our elders, posted something on Friday about marriage week and some article about marriage. I'm like, thanks for telling me, Steve. It's now the end of the week. I haven't done anything for Steph. Trying to make me look bad. Who invented this week and then didn't tell me about it, right? And then overlapped it with Valentine's Day as if single people didn't have enough to deal with already, right? It's like, who is this person? I need to have a sit down with them. But we talk about love. You talk about marriage. And Steph's not here this morning, but my wife, Steph, we got married some three years ago. And can you imagine if I went up to that altar to exchange our wedding vows and to enter into that marriage covenant, and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I'm not going to change the way I've been living. I'm not going to change the way I lived as a single man. I'm still going to toe the line with other women. I might even cross the line with other women. But because of this vow where she says, for better or for worse, she's got to take me back. You would look at me, you might shake me, you might even punch me, and you would be like, that is the opposite of love. You would question that vow because you know what? Loving Steph, getting married to Steph has caused me to change, right? It's caused me to grow up and become a man. When you get married, when you love somebody, you're changed, you're transformed. And you know, it's the same with the grace of God. But so often we can approach salvation or, or people can approach salvation and think this is a, a get out of jail free card. This is a free pass for the rest of my life to do whatever I need. You know, God took a risk announcing forgiveness in advance. But if you truly love God in the same way, you'll be changed. You'll be transformed. That's why Paul and Jesus both summed up all of the laws in essentially two words, love God. Because if you love God, if you truly grasp his grace, you're not going to spend the rest of your life trying to exploit that grace. You're going to spend the rest of your life trying to fathom that grace, trying to grasp that grace or understand the depths of grace. That's why we, we started with this point this morning. But I do want to get to the next point, which is we must undertake the distribution of grace. And to tie these two points together, I want to talk about somebody who I've referred to at RC as the, the megaphone fanatic. Because I used to date Steph, my wife, and she's from Richmond. And I used to go up to downtown Richmond. Even before that, I used to live outside D.C. and go to downtown D.C. And you would always find people on street corners standing on crates or boxes with megaphones. Basically telling people, if you don't turn from your sin, you're going to hell. Basically condemning people. And these people, by characteristics, they're harsh, they're insensitive, they're overbearing, and they're opinionated. And so often you would see them actually turning people off to the idea of the church, turning people off to the idea of Jesus. So if you're not careful, you can begin to think, well, there's three groups of Christians. There's the minimal Christian who says they believe, never really acts on it. They're the hypocrite. I don't want to be that person. And then there's the, the, the Christian fanatic who is seemingly overpassionate, overzealous, overpracticing, and turns people off to the church. So I don't really want to be that person either. So then we begin to think there must be some happy medium where I can be just lax enough but not too passionate either to where I'll find a nice gray area. But that's not the case. See, the megaphone fanatics <laughs> merely paint themselves as ultra committed to the gospel. But you know what? If you're truly in touch with a gospel that's based on grace, it's humbling. And again, these people are harsh, insensitive, overbearing, and opinionated. But if you look at Jesus, he was fanatically humble, empathetic, loving, and caring. And you might say, well, Jesus was harsh at times. 
You know, he, he flipped on some people, but look at who he, was, who he was harsh towards. He was harsh towards those religious people who were overbearing and insensitive to the lost. See, the megaphone fanatics aren't Christian fanatics as much as they're failing to represent Christ. The answer isn't for those people to tone down or restrain their faith or maybe hold back a little bit. The answer is for them to have a truer faith that's founded in grace. Which is, again, why we've got to understand the depths of grace and how powerful it is before we ever go out and try to take the kingdom for God through grace. But this idea of distributing grace, you know, some of the best distributors of a product, some of the best salespeople are the ones that know the product inside and out, right, have experienced it for themselves. You know, uh, what is it, Hair Club for Men. Y'all remember those commercials? Can't talk about those at RC because they're so old, right? But Hair Club for Men, those are classic commercials. you got all these different people with before and after pictures showing before they were bald, now they got their hair back, right? And then at the end, the kicker, the, the, the sell, is that the president comes on. And he's like, not only am I the president, but I'm a satisfied client, right? And he's got his before after picture. And you're like, wow, this guy really was at one point as bald as most of the pastors and eldership at City Life. But he's got his hair back. This is great. You know, like, but I believe we, we don't need to carry our, our before picture spiritually around with us. But we need to bear in mind where we were before we experienced grace. Because it's transforming. And it keeps us humble. And it keeps us gracious towards the people around us. See, the gospel of grace, it's not a stone to throw at people. It's a pillow we offer people to say, man, lay your weary head on this. Stop trying to be good enough. Stop trying to be righteous enough. It's a burden you're not meant to carry. But it's not a stone to pick up and throw. So this campaign of the kingdom, you know, what does it look like? You know, there was that movie, Kingdom of Heaven. It's an awesome movie. But, you know, the Crusades, that's not what the campaign of the kingdom looks like. We know what it shouldn't look like from history like that. But you know what? Sometimes what it does look like, I don't think it looks how we would anticipate. Like one of the biggest numerical revivals in history happened in China during communism. When the church was kicked out, when missionaries were kicked out. And then in 93, right, one of these older missionaries is let back into the country. And by his estimation, he said the population of Christians in China went from 350,000 to 3.5 million 350,000 to 3.5 million. It turns out that the Holy Spirit, it doesn't need the backing of any earthly kingdom or any government to be effective. It's not by the power of man, but by the power of the Spirit that the church is going to grow. And then you look at maybe not the biggest numerical revival, but certainly the most influential and famous, the one that the disciples sparked in the book of Acts and beyond. While they were sparking this revival, the kingdom they loved in Jerusalem was essentially raised, just torn to the ground, the temple destroyed. But you know, deep down they realized that their allegiance wasn't to any earthly kingdom. It was to the kingdom unseen. It was to the kingdom of heaven. But hear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that we should forsake our allegiance to America or, or be apathetic to the kingdoms we live in. You know, as a, a citizen with dual citizenship in the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom we live in daily, we should be the ideal model citizen. We should be active, voting, pursuing progress. We've got so many in city life who are so active in their country, they actually serve in the military. That's why we commend them and celebrate them. And if you were to look at any of the uh, great victories or progress in our nation from the abolition of slavery to the civil rights movement, so often there were believers at the forefront pushing for change and progress. But the point I want to make this morning is that this kingdom of God that moves through grace, it's not going to be ushered in from the top down 
but from the inside out. Because you see, law attempts to change us from the outside, and rarely does that ever work. But grace changes us from the inside out. The reality is that moralism, apart from grace, often solves very little. And without a focus on the gospel of grace, we can lose a balance where every time we see moral depravity, we just want to make sure there's a law against it. And we want legislation to do our job of evangelism or advancing the kingdom. But you got to realize law will never do that. Otherwise, the Mosaic law would have been enough when God handed it to Moses. But Jesus had to come and die so that the kingdom of God could advance through grace. And sometimes we think we'll convince sinners to stop sinning by saying, you're in sin and you need to stop. But that's not what keeps people from sinning. So often that's what keeps people from the church. One time on 60 Minutes, Andy Rooney was talking, and he said, I've decided I'm against abortion. I think it's murder, but I have a dilemma in that I much prefer the pro-choice to the pro-life people. I'd much rather eat dinner with a group of the former. And you might say this morning, who cares who Andy Rooney wants to have dinner with? That's not the point. The point is if our activism, us being active in this kingdom, it forsakes love and it forsakes grace, then we've forsaken the gospel. And we've taken on the, the role of a Pharisee. We're not called to that. See, I don't expect people who don't have a relationship with Christ to behave as if they do. We can get worked up about secular companies that don't operate with Christian principles and look to boycott them. But I don't get upset about people who don't love Christ not acting like they do. Right? If you want to be salt and light, live with as much conviction based on your beliefs as they do, right? Live as true to what you believe as they do. Come on, you talk about salt, 75%, some estimate more of America claims to be Christian. And when you eat with salt, it only takes a pinch of salt to change the dish. I don't pour a pound of salt on a, on a plate of rice. You would think with those numbers that three quarters of a pound of salt would be having way more effect on a pound of food or on a pound of meat. The, the problem is Maybe we're losing our saltiness. You know, if we're going to change the world, change our culture, we've got to be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. But if you look at the church, we're no better at lust. We're no better at debt. We're no better at consumerism. We're no better at relationship. You know, these are what the facts tell. We don't need to go out and Christianize the world. We need a truer grasp on grace that will transform us. And then we can graciously go out in the world and say, look, there is a better way to live. You know, we're living it here at City Life. We want to introduce you to Jesus. It's way more effective than saying, you're in sin, you need to stop. Come on, Jesus gets confronted by the Pharisees and they look for him to condemn. But instead he writes in the sand. And people have conjectured about a hundred different ways about what he was writing. Was he writing the Ten Commandments? Was he listing the sins of the, the Pharisees that were there? Was he just drawing flowers? We don't know. Essentially, like it says in the New King James Version, he's essentially ignoring them, pretending as if he didn't hear. But also, if you take note, you realize that Jesus was slow to speak. You know, it's so easy these days with a smartphone in our pocket, and the temptation is to comment or debate every single thing that happens the moment it happens. But you know, sometimes wisdom is shown in silence. And I'm just reading in between the lines here. <laughs> but when Jesus speaks up, he says, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And then he finishes talking to the woman and he says, neither do I condemn you. You know, who here this morning knows John 3.16? Good. We got more. <laughs> Let me tell you, at City Life last night in Newport News, like a full five people raised their hands. I'm like, Pastor Fred, we got work to do. We need to spark some revival here. But that's good. But who here knows John 3.17? 
Come on, John 3, 17, Jesus essentially says, God did not send me into the world to condemn the world. If only the church knew that verse, and if only the world knew that verse, as much as John 3, 16, which is thrown on billboards and shirts and all kinds of stuff. But if Jesus wasn't sent into the world to condemn the world, why do we as the church so often pick up that mantle? And if I'm honest, because I'm guilty of this as well, I think a lot of times it simply has to do with fear. We look out at the culture, we watch the VMAs and Miley Cyrus, all this crazy stuff, and we're thinking, what is happening to the world? You know, what is happening to our morals? What is happening to any love for God that once was? And we can get fearful. And you know what? Those are the right facts. And you know, sometimes we look at John 8, and we paint this woman who was caught in adultery as a victim, when really she was a villain. She was a home wrecker, a marriage wrecker, she was a lust magnet, whatever you want to call her, a desperate housewife, all of these things. But she was in the wrong. The Pharisees were right about who she was and what she had been doing. But, you know, you can have all the right facts and still have the wrong perspective. You know, they, they were right about who she was. They were right about what she was caught doing. They could quote the Mosaic law. They were right about what needed to be done according to the Mosaic law. They could quote scripture forwards and backwards, but they lacked the perspective of grace. And I think the church at times can be guilty of this. We know the word. We know the law of God. We know that these people out in the world are doing wrong. But we've lost grip on grace. See, Jesus never said that we need to agree with our enemies. But he did say we need to love our enemies. Jesus never said that the mark of his church would be that they are morally superior or politically correct. He merely said that the mark of his church would be love. That's the mark of his disciples, love. Again, the Pharisees were harsh, insensitive, overbearing, and opinionated. What if the church of God was more like Jesus, who was humble, loving, empathetic, sensitive. You know, the Pharisees saw Jesus down there in the dirt, and they wanted him to draw a line in the sand. But Jesus is looking for people in his church who will step across the lines that divide us from them and love on some enemies. We see them as enemies, but really they're victims of our real enemy, who God loves and Jesus died for. You know, Jesus' posture was down in the dirt, but he wasn't picking up stones to throw. He was pointing to the cross. You know, we should be doing the same. We can't condemn as a church because that's not what brings people to Jesus. It's what keeps them from Jesus. You know, we should be connecting them to the church. We should be saying, look, this is your family. We are a bunch of self-aware sinners who are jacked up, but we have laid hold of a grace that doesn't just cover the sins we've, we've committed and even those sins we're going to commit, but it transforms us. It's changing us for the better. And we can say, look, we're walking it out because we have a true grasp of grace that's transforming us. So, Chris, if you want to come up and stroke the guitar, it'll make me sound real spiritual for these last five minutes. It always sounds better when you've got keys or guitar behind you. It's when revival just gets sparked. But uh, this morning, there's hope for the accused. You know, there's hope for the broken. There's hope for the guilty. There's hope for those people that have come in here feeling condemned. Come on, how many times has that been me, right? There's hope for the jacked up. But there's also hope for the accuser. You know, I don't preach this this morning so that we can take stones and throw them at the people that are throwing stones at them. I preach this so we can put down those stones and pick up a truer grasp of grace and begin truly distributing grace to the world around us. Don't accuse, rescue, and point them to the advocate. Don't condemn, connect people to the church, connect people to the cross, connect people to Christ, the hope of glory. And let me tell you, it's an easier way to live. Be an average person saved by the grace of God. 
Trying to be right all the time is exhausting. Trying to be self-righteous or to somehow put on this false and fake front that we've got it all together is exhausting. But because of the cross, one of the greatest realizations you can come to is that I can stand here, even as a pastor today, and say, you know what? I've sinned. I've fallen short of the glory of God. But I've laid hold of a grace that doesn't just cover my sin. It's transforming me daily. And you know, when you can make that confession, it changes the way you look at yourself, and it also changes the way you look at people. Because again, we're called to love one another. Again, our mark is not going to be that we're morally superior. Our mark is going to be that we love those around us. And come on, it's exhausting sometimes, loving, but it's also exhausting arguing. (laughs) You know, it's exhausting to argue and it's exhausting to love, especially when you don't think that person is, is worthy of that love or worthy of that grace, but it's way more fulfilling. And you know what? It's what we were called to do. One of the most revolutionary things the church can do in this day and age when it seems like morals are slipping away and people are turning from God is to love, is to show grace. Because again, it's the one weapon we have as a church that the world doesn't have. It's the key to the kingdom. It's our currency. And it's fulfilling. But let me tell you, again, I realize many of you have come in this morning just feeling dirty. You know, again, that's been me many times. As I was praying yesterday morning as it started to rain, and it rained like all day, I was praying just just before I was getting into my notes, and God put on my heart just this idea that sometimes we can wear shame and we can wear condemnation like a raincoat. Raincoats are never comfortable. They're kind of just burdensome. And then when we go out in the rain, it, it repels the rain. And so often in the church, we sing about let it rain, Every, seemingly every other song is talking about rain to where it becomes cliched, but the grace of God wants to rain down on us. And sometimes we can wear our shame and, and the guilt of our sin and, and what the enemy would put on us, condemnation, and it'll keep us from the grace that wants to wash us clean and free us and release us from that. And you know, Isaiah 61.3, I love the amplified version. It says that the people of God will put on garments of expressive praise, instead of a heavy and burdened spirit. And I love in the Amplified, it talks about expressive praise. We're gonna go back into worship. And you know, if you guys could stand where you're at, Chris is gonna lead us in some songs. But if you're here this morning and you would say, you know what, I feel heavy and burdened because of guilt, or maybe not even something that I did, but something somebody did to me. I just feel like I need to experience the grace of God this morning. Then come on, let's put on the garments of expressive praise. You know, I love that the word expressive is there instead of a heavy and burdened spirit. So let's really worship this morning. And if you were here this morning and you would say, I've never experienced the grace of God. I've never said yes because I've always felt like I'm in the right place, but it's the wrong time. You know, this might be the right place to experience the grace of God, but I'm too far gone. The grace of God, again, says that's a lie. There's no such thing. If you want to experience the grace of God and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then just grab me. I'll be over here as Chris leads us in worship. But come on, let's take off those heavy garments and put on a garment of expressive praise this morning. Let's worship God.